Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for listening in. This is a republished episode with Dr. Karen Reeder about her book, The Enemy in the Household on Family Violence in Deuteronomy and Beyond. And it's been a while since we published this episode, and I thought it'd be good to get it back out there um, since it's uh, an important topic. And um, I, I think Karen's approach to the violent family text in Deuteronomy is really interesting and helpful. Uh, also, I, I want to just remind you that we have a live event coming up with Vince Bantu in San Antonio. Uh, there's information on our website, onscript.study forward slash events. It's going to be on uh, Monday, the 22nd of November at 8 p.m. We'll be discussing Vince's book, A Multitude of All Peoples, Engaging Ancient Christianity's Global Identity, uh, published by IVP. And this event is sponsored by IVP, so we're grateful to them for that. So if you're in the San Antonio area or would like to be in the San Antonio area uh, for that event, maybe you're going to be at AARSBL, we'd love to see you there. So check out our website for information. Enjoy the episode. Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 11 reads, If your brother the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is like your own self urges you secretly, saying, Let us go and worship other gods, gods whom you and your ancestors have not known. Do not give in to them. Do not listen to them. Do not let your eye pity them. Do not spare and do not conceal them. Rather, you shall indeed kill them. Your hand should be against them first to kill them, and the hand of all the people thereafter. You will stone that person with stones until they die, for they sought to turn you away from Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. And all Israel will hear and fear so that they will not do anything like this evil thing in your midst. Most of us who read this cringe, The idea that one could suppress the impulse to show pity to one's most intimate relations would seem to run directly against the grain of every human instinct. How can this text be God's word to us? How have interpreters throughout history wrestled with commands to exercise such family violence? Well, we don't need to despair because with us today is Dr. Karen Reeder, Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Westmont College in California and author of The Enemy in the Household, Family Violence in Deuteronomy and Beyond. Karen, welcome to OnScript. Thanks very much. So how did you come to develop an interest in biblical studies and ultimately in this specific question of family violence in the Bible? Well, one thing I do want to be clear about, my mother is quite keen that I say it's not because of my own family history. (laughs) She's always really worried that people will question her. Yeah, you're basically (laughs) working out your past through your scholarship. Yes. A lot of people do that. That's yeah, that's not the case here. Um, Actually, my interest in biblical studies came. I think I can trace most of it back to the time right after university. I lived in Jerusalem for two years, from 1999 to 2001. Uh, And living there and having the chance to um, do more detailed biblical study there was an incredible opportunity. And it got me so interested in reading the Bible in the context of geography, culture, society, and politics. 
Um, so that drove me back to grad school eventually for biblical studies. But that also, I think, is where I got really interested in family and violence in the Bible. Mm. In the Middle East, of course, family is so important. Uh, you have such close ties with your family. You're expected to be a contributing member of the family. And it really does center life to the extent that my um, Palestinian friends especially would say, what are you doing here so far away from your own family? How have they let you do this? <laughs> um, so bringing that interest in the family in the Middle East to the Bible and suddenly noticing all of these texts where violence against family members is even part of the law of Moses, uh, that got me really interested in that conundrum. So, so you were in Jerusalem in 99. Mm -hmm. um, that, I was. That was. That's actually the year I first went to Israel. Oh, um, right. <laughs> yeah. So I, where were you in Jerusalem? So I lived in the north part of the city, right on the line between West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem, um, near Hebrew University, Mount Scopus area. Okay. And so were you working yeah. at Hebrew University? In there? part, and also in Bethlehem. So I was working for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship as part oh, yeah. of their international staff. Yeah. So oh, I, great. yeah, it was a lot of tea drinking. That's yeah. mostly what I remember <laughs> from my time there. <laughs> but, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. That's interesting because that's where mm -hmm. I uh, first got into biblical studies. So oh, really? I was, yeah, I was at Jerusalem University College mm -hmm. and where mm -hmm. I uh, also met my wife. Yeah, I had that. That that was a very formative year for me as well. Right. And, yeah. and and I remember too. One of the things that had a huge impact on me. I wasn't there as long, but mm -hmm. uh, was going to Hebron and mm -hmm. meeting Palestinians mm -hmm. and seeing the mm -hmm. the situation in uh, the West Bank. And you could get mm -hmm. into Hebron at that point. So yeah. So yeah. You, so you were there during the Second Intifada. That, that's a very interesting time to be yeah. there. It was that, that's for sure. And wow. I think actually it's led me into my more recent research as well in women, children, and war in the Bible. Um, started in the family violence, but then sort of branched out a little bit. And I think it's because of the experience of seeing the imagery and how violence happened um, and still happens in that region. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. We can maybe touch on that work later, but um, mm -hmm. one of the things I wanted to to just ask um, as well, and you've already touched on some of this, but if you could reflect on some of the major themes in addition to violence uh, mm -hmm. that, that run through your research and what are some of the, the driving questions that you have that led to you writing this book or maybe some of the articles and other stuff that you've written? I think I started with a strong interest in family and family households. Um, but when you start with that interest, you get into so many other areas so quickly. Um, questions of gender, of the role of women and children and slaves in the household. Um, I've been really interested in slavery. It's not something I've directly addressed in my work, but I teach a lot on slavery in the biblical worlds and especially in the Roman world of the New Testament. And how does that relate to the household? And, and does that come um, from uh, your... Uh, doing chores growing up, and, and is that also related <laughs> right. to your family? <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit more of that. Okay, yeah. I right. grew up on a farm, so <laughs> oh, that's right. There was a lot to do. Yeah, <laughs> in, in central Illinois, right? <laughs> that's right. Yep. Okay, and and, yeah. and and it says in your bio that you you failed to learn to drive the tractor. 
Yes. Yeah. Um, I can't even handle a lawnmower really. So my dad would not let me get anywhere near the tractors. <laughs> <laughs> so in, uh, is this like, uh, near Urbana Champaign. Urbana. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. So, sorry, you were saying about slavery as, as one of the subjects mm-hmm. that you're interested mm-hmm. in as well. Um, mm-hmm. And what are some of the questions around slavery that interest you? Particularly with respect to women, I'm really interested. Now, interested is a difficult word here, but mm-hmm. uh, I have a lot of questions about the sexual exploitation of women slaves in ancient households, including the Old Testament stories like Hagar, mm. um, for instance, but also um, in the New Testament world and what that would have looked like for slaves, maybe slaves who were Jewish slaves or Christian slaves in Roman households and how they would have navigated that. There's not a lot that we can say about it because it's such a blank area, but um, it's something I really wonder about. And I think that it's worth more research. Yeah. So, so it sounds mm-hmm. like your, your research interests are at the intersection of text culture and ethics. Is that, is that a fair, fair assessment? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So let's talk about your book, The uh, Enemy in the Household, Mm -hmm. um, which is uh, really well written. And and I found it fascinating. Uh, As I said to you before our interview started, there aren't many books that do a good job at texts in the Old Testament, Second Temple Judaism, and mm-hmm. the New Testament, but you really dig in deep into those texts to explore the question of violence. So maybe uh, if you could just help our listeners out by explaining the basic premise of that book or some of the driving mm-hmm. uh, themes that run through the enemy in the household. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I start in the book of Deuteronomy, which is actually one of my favorite books in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the way that it fits together and the literary style of it. Uh, So in Deuteronomy, there is a strong focus on the family as a central factor in the covenant. Mm -hmm. You teach your children the covenant. You write it on the walls of your house. You say it when you get up and when you lie down. Um, It's part of your very existence within the household. And at the end of Deuteronomy, there's in Deuteronomy 29, there's an explicit emphasis on every member of the household being there when Israel says, we accept this covenant, we will do it, we will live this way. Hmm. So family is super important in Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. And yet there are these three texts in Deuteronomy where Moses says, kill them, kill your family members if they somehow challenge the covenant. Mm -hmm. So I was really interested in exploring what does that mean in Deuteronomy, both Mm -hmm. within the book itself as a literary whole, but also within the theology of the Old Testament and ancient Israel, and within ancient society, what would it look like to kill, as in Deuteronomy 13, the wife you hold in your arms or your friend who is like your own soul or your brother who is your full brother, not just a half brother. Mm. Um, Or in Deuteronomy 21, what does it mean to kill your son because he rebels against your authority or in Deuteronomy 22, your daughter. Um, Yeah. So that conflict of the significance of the family to the covenant and violence against family members was very intriguing to me. 
Um, and of course, that's also the answer in Deuteronomy. Because the family is so important, you have to even sacrifice the family to keep the covenant. Mm. Be- because the mm. family is the, the, the means of carrying out the covenant mm-hmm. and living out the covenant that a lot's at stake there. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, even your most beloved family members, um, the ones that you teach the covenant to, the ones who help you live out the covenant, they're the first to go if they try and lead you astray. Well, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> so so uh, for for some of our listeners, they might have a particular image when, when you say family. Um, mm, so maybe yeah. it'd be helpful to, to just say what family looked like back then. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question because it's not a husband, wife, two and a half kids, and a dog. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's much more complicated than that in ancient Israel. Yeah, so the household in ancient Israel um, could include sort of the patriarchal figure, the eldest male, um, maybe his wife or wives, if he still has a few who are alive, his sons, their wives, their children, Maybe some unmarried sisters or aunts who are still lingering around, um, some slaves, maybe some other unattached people in the community who needed a place to live. And so you bring them into your household. It's uh, quite an expansive idea. So um, I thought that this, uh, one of the points that you made in your book, you you talk about what the family is. Uh, You said that a family in antiquity is not solely or even primarily concerned with nurturing and emotionally supporting mm-hmm. its members, that households were focused on and dedicated to subsistence. Uh, so mm-hmm. could you unpack that a little bit and explain, like, yeah. what, what's the job of a family? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something I struggle with in getting across to my students a lot, because when they think of family, they think reading stories and baking cookies and going for walks, going to the park. But The family in the ancient world didn't have a lot of time for leisure, um, didn't have a lot of time for going together to a museum or something. Not that they had museums, of course. (laughs) (laughs) What they had time for and what they had to be focused on was getting enough food to feed everyone in the household, was making clothes so that they could clothe everyone in the household, Um, raising livestock so that they would have a future. Uh, And that required everyone to work together. So little children, as soon as they could manage um, the physical nature of work, would be expected to work alongside their brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents um, to support the household. Um, Growing up on a farm, I have some familiarity with that, <laughs> although my grandfather also didn't think that women should work on the farm, so, <laughs> so <laughs> I had a little less than maybe my dad did growing up. Um, but there's a sense that you can't just sit around and be lazy in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody had to work, had to help each other um, so that the family as a whole could survive. And that adds another layer, I think, to the texts um, saying kill your family members. Yeah. If they're not being productive members, mm-hmm. then that's a real danger to the rest of the household. Yeah, so so let's mm-hmm. talk about uh, Deuteronomy, I think it's 21, the the drunken mm-hmm. drunken son. So mm-hmm. there's this law yes. where parents are able to kill their son if it's proven that he's a 
sluggard and a drunkard, right? Is that, are those the two? Mm-hmm. Or glut, yes. Glutton and a drunkard. Well, glutton and a drunk. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so help help us put that in context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would see a couple of different levels of meaning there. I think one is what we've just been talking about. If your son is drinking all of the <laughs> wine that you've made from the year and yeah. eating all of the food that you've gathered, yeah. that's a problem for the yeah. rest of the family. Yeah. Um, Puts their he's lives not at, being at, at risk. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he's not only not helping the family survive, but he's actually endangering the rest of the household by taking away the resources from them. But on another level, and I think we see this especially with the vocabulary of um, being stubborn in Deuteronomy 21, it connects with the depiction of Israel and the prophets Mm. in the Old Testament. And so we get this second level of meaning around the son that he's not just rebelling against the household and the need to work for the household. He is also endangering the covenant. And that means that that household is in danger of being struck off from Israel um, and losing that part of their existence. So. Yeah. So he's a he's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, he needs to be dealt with. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that raises another question of uh, do we have any evidence of these laws actually being carried out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is a fascinating question. We have no examples of any sons being killed for being disobedient, rebellious or stubborn or drunks. <laughs> um, we have a couple of examples where they aren't killed. So really famously, David's sons um, rebel against him to the extent of starting wars, and yet he weeps for them rather than trying to take them out to the elders of the city in the gate and stone them to death. Um, The best example, I think, actually comes in Josephus, who in the first century Jewish historian telling us about Herod, Herod the Great, Um, who seems perhaps to have used those laws against his own sons. Um, (laughs) As if he needed a law to justify uh, anything he did. Exactly, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know that Herod the Great's a good example that we should be following in our lives, but (laughs) the witness overall of the Old Testament um, is that sons were not killed for these offenses Um, And that, I think, is interesting in the book of Proverbs, where a lot of the language of Deuteronomy 21 reappears, but more as a, here's how you should teach your sons and raise your sons so that they will be good members of the household, good members of society. Mm -hmm. So so, so in other words, the father is warning the son away from from those behaviors or? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So For instance, you should discipline your sons while they're young so that they will grow up to be good members of the covenant community. Um, You should make sure that they don't drink because it's dangerous and here are all the reasons why. Um, Yeah. Yeah, So so the fact that, and again, there's an argument from silence because we don't really know. Um, and, And I mean, there's another question too of how law itself functioned in the ancient world. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, like whether this is legislation or how we should think about the operation of these laws or what they're doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
I think that different laws are doing different things. So I wouldn't want to make grand statements on the law as a whole. Sure. Um, what I'm really interested in in Deuteronomy is the theology of it, of how do these laws that seem to go right against what we think of the significance of the family, um, what are they doing there and how do they, what do they teach us about, about this idea of law? Um, and I think in that, the way that they interact or come back up in the prophets as depictions of Israel as a whole is really important to how we understand um, the law of the sun, for instance, or the um, the Deuteronomy 13 law. Yeah, and, and I thought that was that was fascinating and really helpful for me is you, you showed the, the interaction between the – so you've got these individual laws about what to do with your rebellious son, and then you go on to talk about the – the dishonorable daughter, uh, who who turns out she's not a virgin when she's uh, about to get married, and uh, and and she she can be is it stoned or burned? I can't remember which. Stoned. But, okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's stoned. Yeah. Other women are burned, but <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. It's good to keep it straight because there's a big difference. Yes. Um, the so you have these individual laws for the son and the daughter. And then Israel itself exhibits these behaviors. So they're God's son, and they're rebellious, and they're uh, in—I don't know if they're ever—they're never called God's daughter, but they are charged with unfaithfulness. And yeah. so, yeah. so then you raise the question of, well, how's Israel treated when they mm-hmm. when they acted this way? So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. do you want to comment on 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 that? Because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so we see that, well, certainly we have the exile, we have this punishment, um, but that punishment is not annihilation or total death, like we would assume from stoning the son, stoning the daughter. There's not a lot of hope after that, the child is dead. (laughs) Um, But Israel, although it suffers the punishment of the covenant and it goes into exile, it's also restored. And so there's some hope there for the son and the daughter um, in repentance and in restoration. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so then as you – yeah, so, so, so thinking about the interaction of nation and individual laws can maybe help us then read back – read those laws again in a new light in light of how how God actually like, – it's like, well, let's take the example of God. How does he treat his children? And, and, then, and then think – think in that direction. So I thought that was a, a helpful. It doesn't resolve everything, but it's a, it's a good no, it doesn't. good angle on mm-hmm. on the challenge of these these laws. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things you point out is how Deuteronomy consistently elevates the community over the individual. And yes. and of course this is this runs right through the Bible in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. This is not unique to mm-hmm. Deuteronomy, although it's quite mm-hmm. quite powerful in Deuteronomy. Is this simply a moral difference between us and them that, you know, it's it's hard for us to imagine a punishment that would affect a whole family uh, directly uh, mm-hmm. a, as, as a just punishment or a just discipline, whereas in the ancient world, that's that's not that surprising. So do you think mm-hmm. that's just a moral difference or or maybe one that... Uh, modern stand to be challenged on? Or what do you think about that? Mm -hmm. I think we do need to challenge ourselves on this. Um, Rampant individualism in modern society is, from my perspective at least, it can be incredibly dangerous. 
when we put ourselves at the center, rather than thinking about how our actions affect everyone around us, I think we see that in uh, climate change and debates over what can we do in this situation. We see it in the political world, as we have seen over and over since the election, I think, in the United States. Um, and we see it in our day-to-day -day lives, just in the way we treat each other at the grocery store or wait in lines or don't wait in lines or treat the people who are more needy or less privileged in society around us. Uh, this is a message that I think we can really stand to hear from Deuteronomy is that we should be considering how our ac actions affect other people. And maybe that means we need to change our own actions to change the way that we're living in the world. I think that's an interesting way that the New Testament um, picks up on this theme in Deuteronomy um, and reapplies it to the individual. Philo does this as well in um, the Second Temple Jewish context of the New Testament, but especially um, Paul in 1 Corinthians, I think, is picking up on these themes and saying it's not about cutting someone off from the community in order to punish them. It's in order to protect the community. And you need to think about what you're doing so that you don't endanger the community. And I think as well, Jesus in saying, cut off your hand, <laughs> throw it away if it causes you to sin. That's a call to be aware of yourself and to be aware of what you're doing so that you don't make someone else struggle. Yeah. 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 So so let's talk then, um, since you, you brought up the, the New Testament, and some of the Second Temple mm -hmm. literature, how how this theme of what you call constructive family violence, in, order, mm -hmm. in other words, as I understand it, violence that, that serves some positive purpose for the yeah. protection of the family and community, mm -hmm. how how this theme is picked up in Second Temple mm -hmm. literature in the New Testament. I'm sure the New mm -hmm. Testament text would be more familiar with our listeners, uh, but you can mm -hmm. touch on either. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so well, let's talk about Josephus, Philo, and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. They have some interesting messages, I think. Yeah. Um, Josephus and Philo both say, yeah, do it. <laughs> if these things happen in your community, you should take care of it. Mm -hmm. um, and these are laws that we should uphold. And that has interesting allusions to the Roman world, of course, because the Romans also had some pretty fierce expectations for their sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. And there were patterns of violence against sons and daughters that would have been familiar between the Roman and Jewish and early Christian worlds. Um, but Philo also says, okay, so if you're, if this happens with your son or daughter, you should stone them for sure. That's okay. But you should also watch out for yourself <laughs> and maybe we need to internally internalize these laws a bit, um, and use them to mark our own actions, to guard our own thoughts, to make sure that we are keeping ourselves on the straight and narrow. Um, so it's not necessarily just about how do you raise your children, how do you care for your household, but it's also about reason and the, yeah, your own spirituality. Right. And that's where I'd see a connection with some of the New Testament authors as well that I was just talking about. Yeah. So um, um, in 
in Paul, so you mentioned First Corinthians. Paul mm-hmm. is, is is dealing with someone in the church who's uh, sleeping with his his mother in law. And how does Paul's response reflect this theme of family violence? Yeah. So if we think of the church as family, which Paul mm-hmm. definitely does. In fact, in the chapter right before this, in First Corinthians four, he talks about himself as a father, and the Corinthians are his children. Right. Um, and should he come to them with love or should he come to them with a stick to beat them up and get them back in line, which picks up on some of that <laughs> issues of family violence and the disciplining of children. Well, if you spare the rag, you spoil the child. Exactly. Exactly. Paul's yep. right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then in chapter five, when he starts talking about this man who has had sex with his stepmother, um, his father's wife. Um, yeah, he says... It's a complicated text. There's a lot of layers of interpretation there. But essentially what he says is, hand him over to Satan. Mm -hmm. Think, what? (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) How does that work? Um, And what I would argue is that it is a, um, it's not stoning the man, but it is cutting him off from the community to say he's done something that is not just affecting him and the woman who we don't know anything about her, but because she doesn't come up in the text at all, except as in reference to what this man has done, it would suggest that maybe she hasn't had a lot of say in this issue, um, that maybe she's more sinned against than sinning, um, to use that language. Yeah, so he's hurt himself. He's hurt this family household, but he also is bringing that danger into the church. So cut off that danger. Yeah. Um, And then you have Jesus, who one of the interesting things that you brought up was the, the use of this idea of constructive family violence against Jesus and his and his followers. Uh, which which I had I had never picked up on. Yeah. So one of the places we see this is, um, well, one of the clearest places is in the Gospel of Luke in chapter four when Jesus is in Nazareth. He's it's his first public appearance in his ministry in Luke, and he's preaching in the synagogue and says, "Hey, I'm fulfilling this right here in your hearing." And immediately everyone tries to stone him. And so that could be an example of the law of Deuteronomy 21 in action, that this kid is seen as a major threat to the local community, um, not just to his household, but to the entire hometown. And so it's taken care of straight away. Yeah. And and I think Um, think you mentioned some linguistic connections as mm -hmm. well, that he might be seen as the one in like Deuteronomy yes. 13 that's leading the community yes. astray, yes, you exactly. know, which is, which is yeah. like straight yeah. out of there. So someone mm-hmm. and that person yeah. would need to be stoned. Yeah. And he's also called a glutton and a drunk. Well, he calls himself a glutton and a drunk mm. when he's comparing himself with John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. John's all abstemious and you didn't yeah. like him. I come eating and drinking and you say, oh, a glutton and a drunk, right. which harks right back to Deuteronomy 21 as well. Right, right. Um, Then we also have this scene where um, in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus, um, the people from Jesus' household try to come and take control of him because people are saying he's gone out of his mind, which would be another example of the family trying to control someone who (laughs) seems to be endangering them and the entire people. Yeah, and and potentially shaming the family, which is another big big deal. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of social shame would reflect badly on Jesus um, whole household and could make them make it more difficult for them to live in the world. Um, yeah. So we've got those elements with Jesus himself. But then in Mark chapter 13, in the middle of the apocalyptic discourse, Jesus says to the disciples, look, this is going to happen to you too. Your fathers and brothers are going to turn you over to be killed. Your children are going to rise up against you and put you to death. And I would argue, I did argue, in fact, (laughs) that that is precisely about these laws in Deuteronomy coming into effect, that the disciples are seen as dangers to the covenant um, or to the community of Israel as it was perceived in that time. Yeah. And so they need to be dealt with. So so as you, as you step back and reflect on mm-hmm. this whole tradition of family, constructive family violence in the Bible, which we see it's used to with the aim of helping preserve the covenant and also against the people of God uh, in, mm-hmm. in Jesus and, and elsewhere. What guidance would you offer someone who, who says, you know, I look at these texts and I just think these legitimate violence um, mm-hmm. and they have been mm-hmm. used to legitimate violence. Yeah. Our strategy toward them should be one of resistance. Yeah. 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 I have a lot of sympathy for that. I think... We have so many examples through the history of the world of biblical text being used for evil and um, to enact violence and to support violence, not just within the household, but much more broadly in society. And I do think we need to be incredibly careful of where we take these texts. I think my study gives an initial step to how might we understand how did this operate in the ancient world? But I don't think that that means it gives us reason to commit acts of violence ourselves. Um, And I think there that the New Testament and in Philo, the reframing of this violence as something that you need to do within yourself to um, make sure that you yourself are not misleading others, (laughs) I think that's really helpful for how we might appropriate these texts but re reconsider them not as something that we can use against others, but something that we need to consider within ourselves. Um, But I also think, yeah, we, we need to take seriously the fact that these texts are about violence and they're not pretty. And we need to um, read them seriously from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I think uh, you know, this goes back to an, a much earlier ep- episode with Megan Heading, where uh, my friend Brad Jerzak interviewed her about the rhetoric of hell in the New Testament, and mm, you know, mm-hmm. j- there there is a rhetorical function to to these texts, particularly in Deuteronomy. I think, and I mean, just reading the wording of Deuteronomy thirteen. It's meant to shock and disturb you. Yes. And, and yes. I think, you know, if we imagine this being heard by everyone in the community, I doubt that the function was to be, was to make you suspicious of your neighbor all the time, but to, but to weigh the cost of, of turning from Yahweh and so on. So, so there is a, a shock factor like we see in the prophets where they continually shock the people out of complacency and so on. Uh, but I really liked your word reframing because mm-hmm. I, I see that 
in different ways in the Bible and thinking about violence, but, but you've done a great job in showing it with family violence. When we look at the New Testament about how Jesus and Paul reframe this, and it's still disturbing and shocking. I mean, when Jesus when when Jesus kind of redefines family, it's it's quite harsh in in the way it sounds. And when Paul says, "Hand this guy over to Satan," you know, but that's different than saying, "Go stone him." So so I th- I think that reframing should at least guide Christian interpreters who are looking at these texts and saying, "What are the lenses through which we should read these?" Yeah. Um, one one text I, I thought you were going to deal with, and I'd just like to hear your if you have any comment on it, uh, which is John 8, 7, and the woman caught in adultery. That's an interesting story, which I haven't dealt with because I don't think it belongs in John's gospel. <laughs> but it is a really interesting story in the sense of picking up some of these themes of particularly the violence against women. Um which is more than violence against sons, is more present, I think, across ancient societies as it is today around the world. Um, Yeah, so I love that story in John 8, even though I don't think it actually belongs in John's gospel. Um, I know, I know. It just interrupts the narrative so much. Um, But it is a beautiful story of how Stoning someone maybe should not be your first impulse. <laughs> maybe you should think about <laughs> note note to the listener. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, think more about yourself and what you've done wrong, um, rather than jumping to immediately judging and punishing yeah. someone else, especially in that desperate sort of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an introspective turn that you saw on Philo as mm-hmm. well. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and I should just mention that for listeners um, who aren't familiar with this, there's a text critical debate here about uh, this. This is, from what I understand, not in the earliest manuscripts of John. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you look at where, um, if you look at the text around it, it seems to flow really nicely from the end of John chapter seven right into whatever comes right after the story in John chapter eight. So it does seem to have interrupted somehow come in from another source, but it is a really nice story. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, there's a question that we always ask um, our guests on OnScript, and I just wanted to get your opinion on this. And that is what's one idea or argument in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Okay, I'm just coming off of a semester of teaching, and so I don't know if I can recalibrate my brain enough to biblical studies as a whole. (laughs) But I can say one thing that I really wish my students would get um, is this question of um, going to heaven, Hmm. this idea that somehow we're all going to float off and be in the clouds playing harps and wearing white bathrobes. This is consistently the issue that my students fight me on the most. Oh, really? (laughs) This idea that, yeah, 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 they want that. They want to go to heaven. They want to know that, I don't know, their dog is up there right now watching them and still being with them. Oh, Um, I'm I'm convinced that my dog, Brownie, is looking down mm -hmm. at me right now and and, uh, listening to this interview. So please, please, please don't take that from me. (laughs) No, no, of course, you can keep your dogs. Dogs go to heaven, but humans don't. (laughs) So the the idea that um, in the New Testament, heaven comes to earth, 
um, I think we need to talk more about that and see more um, what that means in the New Testament and how that works out. Excellent. Um, um, we're coming to the end of the interview, but uh, I just want to ask, as as you're reflecting on violence in the Bible and thinking theologically about some of these questions, what are some of the lingering concerns that you have that that you didn't feel you quite resolved in your study mm-hmm. and that now are kind of driving your research and, mm-hmm. and thinking today? Mm. Yeah, I... When I was working on the book and I talked to people about it and people at, within academic context, but also people you meet on the airplane or wherever else you are talking about your work, <laughs> um, I would immediately get a lot of stories about, oh, my family experienced this or I saw this myself. This is my story. And I don't feel like I had the skills to deal with that in the book. So In some ways, I wish that I'd done a little bit more on some of the ethical questions within the book. Um, I don't know that I'm doing any better now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I would imagine that some of that, uh, the the stories will find, Mm -hmm. people will find points of connection then with what you're, with the research you're doing now. I hope so. Women in war and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. Well, uh, Karen, I've uh, appreciated uh, our conversation together and really uh, look forward to seeing some of the other work that you're you're, you're currently diving yeah. into. And, uh, yes, I do too. <laughs> Be glad to. Do, I'm really looking for something more happy to do in the future. So if you've got any recommendations, uh, let me know. <laughs> and maybe you could do a, a study on going to heaven. I think that would be yeah. a, a great theme. <laughs> yes. <laughs> heaven for pets. <laughs> yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for joining OnScript. Thank you very much. Thank you.